1: LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Amit Goswami who joins us to discuss the Everything Answer Book how quantum physics explains love, death and the meaning of life. Goswami's basic premise is that quantum physics is not only the future of science but also the path to understanding consciousness, life, death, god and the meaning of life. Quantum physics offers an antidote to the moral sterility of scientific reductionism and mechanistic materialism and holds the key to the clearest, most coherent understanding of our universe. In short, Quantum physics is indeed the theory of everything. In the Everything Answer book, Goswami and his colleagues discuss, among other things, how quantum physics affects our understanding of thoughts, feelings and intuitions, karma, death and reincarnation, dreams, evolution and the purpose of existence. Crucially, it points the way towards the spiritualization of politics, economics, business, education and wider society itself all of which are vital steps if our species is to survive and thrive through the challenging times ahead. Hello and welcome, Amit. Thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. You're very welcome, Greg. Glad to be here. Today, Amit, we're going to talk a little bit about your most recent book. That's entitled The Everything Answer Book, How Quantum Physics Explains Love, Death and the Meaning of Life. Now, that's quite a title, as we'll get to very shortly. Before we we dive into all this, however, uh, for listeners who don't know, just give um, a little potted biography of yourself, your background, and your work in general.
0: Well, um, I don't know if any background qualifies any author to write uh, everything, answer book, But it's not to my credit that I wrote that book, it's the credit of quantum worldview. Quantum physics is really giving us a science to look at things in a new way and it seems like it can give answer to everything that we engage with. Human societies in general engage with. How I got into um, studying quantum physics, uh, well, uh, it's definitely two stages. I had an upbringing which is uh, quite spiritual, religious, but I really kind of rebelled against it. Um, It just did not sound uh, very scientific to me, some of the propositions like we are all one. Uh, I could see the difference, I could not see the oneness. So that was a very hard one for me. And uh, there were discrepancies uh, like that again and again and again uh, between the culture, Hindu culture, and my tendencies, which was to read up voraciously whatever I could find. And most, most of it was, you know, science, science fiction. I was very much interested in that. So that was the first phase. My conversion into more and more into science, and then I went into scientific materialism, became fully scientific materialist. And when the opportunity arose to learn quantum physics, I did not bother about the meaning because the you know I just didn't have that bent. The teacher told me that learn to use quantum physics. I took that vocabulary and learned to use it and used it. Until the sweet age of uh, midlife, 37 or so. And then one day I'm at this conference and feeling extremely unhappy because uh, other people are giving better talks, they're getting more attention. You know, an emotion that you call jealousy. But it was overwhelming. whole day, every speaker uh, only incited emotions of jealousy from me. And then in the evening, everybody is enjoying and I am only thinking again in jealousy terms why women are paying more attention to other men and not to me. You know, um, so this goes on for until one o'clock in the morning and then I kind of get disgusted with myself and go outside and this thought comes. That was the beginning of a change. Why do I live this way? And the conviction came almost simultaneously that I do not have to. I can find happy physics, physics that will make me happy, not only that, Will enable me to integrate my life with the work that I did, namely physics. So I call it happy physics, the quest for happy physics. And that took a while, but eventually I uh, found quantum physics and I have been, uh, you know, increasing my degree of happiness (laughs) ever since.
1: Well, of course, a lot of people, their initial thought would be whether they're of a scientific bent or not well science doesn't really have anything to do with happiness or unhappiness it's not about that it's supposed to be just about what is and how things work Uh, and increasingly uh, you know since the scientific revolution and then the industrial revolution our lives uh, the direction of our species has largely been guided by science and the byproducts of science but after a certain point it's become apparent that it's not been delivering this scientific materialist paradigm has not been meeting human needs, which are beyond simply material things. And, you know, once you get beyond Maslow's hierarchy of needs, once our basic needs are met, then there's other things that we look for that we cannot really find in this materialist paradigm. So we're at a sort of position now where science is promising or scientists are promising almost the answers to everything Just somewhere down the line, it always seems to be just around the corner, but people are increasingly restless. And what we see emerging now is a a realisation and then a move towards trying to integrate all of this. If science is just meant to be like hard and cold and about facts, and yet what we really crave is meaning and purpose and a, a quest for some kind of ultimate truth, Can these two things overlap in any meaningful way? And it would seem that a lot of the schism and a lot of the problems over the last centuries, maybe even millennia, have been this extreme divergence of science and spirituality, this mutually exclusive thing, you know, never the twain shall meet. And I think that's gradually beginning to change, although, as you do point out in the opening of your new book... This integration currently is superficial. I think this is to quote your exact words, in fact, superficial and incomplete.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it is, it is um, very superficial. People talk about post materialist science, I know, but um, they want to keep science in the same ill, even when they look for post materialist science. In other words, a very large number of people, um, uh, this is gets a little personal, a very large number of people um, in their personal life who do science especially are what I call, um, suffer from the brain defect of overall overwhelming intellectualism. Intellectuals um, like to think a lot, but they don't like to live any of their thinking because they don't know how to live, they have never really explored the emotional side of life. And that is a very general defect of all the scientists, even those people who work with post materialist science, that unfortunately overwhelms them because they never experience the use of life, the uh, what life offers, you know, meaning and purpose, as you mentioned. Um, They never really look at it that way. They look at it in a very competitive way. Uh, You'll be surprised how competitive these new fields are. And the overall assumption you'll make, well, they're talking about oneness of consciousness, you know, the first thing you would expect is very cooperative uh, way of dealing with each other. But that's not what you find. You find the same kind of competition that engulfs scientists all over. Why is that? And, and the answer again is that that total detachment from the juice of life Total detachment from any other way to be conscious than intellectual pursuit is a huge problem of the paradigm shift. But we are overcoming. I mean, the the good stuff is that, you know, the more I talk to neuroscientists, the more I find that um, the neuroscience, which is the science of our brain, is really bringing to fore the ideas that we are shortchanging our potentiality. You know, they have identified areas of the brain where we mostly spend um, when we are uh, delving with the same kind of activity that we always deal deal with. In other words, the the brain really uh, goes into this miscentered place. And then um, uh, you have your own tent in which you can take occasional foray and keep yourself very busy, but whenever you are not doing anything, always you return to the same place, the center place of the brain. And um, uh, this is not using the human potential for our enormous capacity of doing other things. And um, so brain scientists, young people who are doing brain research, I'm not claiming that old people will change because they, they are concerned about it. But young people are quite concerned about this and they are very willing to consider um, new science which says consciousness is the ground of being. They are very interested to uh, consider concepts such as quantum self, you know, which promises integration in our life. So things are changing.
1: I think that uh, with all that's been written in recent decades about quantum mechanics, quantum physics and kind of its potential implications and what what it might tell us about the world, there's still a kind of a, and I've talked to many regular people who are not scientific at all, and they've said, yeah, you know, I've read these popular science books and they've been so interesting. And then I put them down and I almost haven't remembered anything about it. And I think one of the barriers to integration that That I find in that context is this general feeling that this is absolutely fascinating, but it's a micro world that it affects, and it doesn't affect us when we put the book down. It doesn't affect us or the book or the door that we might we might walk out of, or the people that we might go to meet, or the situations that we find then find ourselves in. So it it seems to a lot of people to extreme to be like a lot of science, I think, for laymen to be very abstract and difficult for them to imagine how to apply to their own their own lives.
0: Yeah, you know, this is where the, uh, the difficulties come in. The publicity apparatus of the um, scientific material is, is very huge. So, and only a few of us, of the parad- new paradigm scientists uh, like me, talk about, you know, real paradigmship, real changes in the scientist itself that, New consciousness uh, ideas are uh, promoting. So uh, this is a huge problem, of course. But you know, people should know that, of course, uh, the micro, macro, this does not even apply because the way I pointed out constantly that took, we are not talking about the uh, micro versus macro question at all because that applies only to the physical. Our main occupation is the internal experiences that we have, vital, mental, and supramental archetypal, intuitive. So, uh, and all those are not breakable into micro-macro, they're quantum and they're always quantum. Um, Of course, we haven't found, the discovered the mathematics of it, so the scientist feels kind of handicapped and suspicious but mathematics is a very new discovery and uh, we should be able to do science without mathematics. We always have done this up before the past 400 years, we should not forget that. And the, um, so you know, um, uh, that's one thing and the other thing is that this is the part which really bothers me that you know the medias could help us a lot. The some parts of the quantum worldview view uh, are not debatable although they are discovered in connection with micro but they re- absolutely um, go outside of this micro macro debate because reality cannot be separate from the micro or the macro either it is this or it is that and what is the basic reality that quantum physics just basic quantum physics suggested? that there is no doubt that objects are waves of possibility. The mathematics says so, any way of regarding them, uh, everybody agrees that yes, it is so. And then uh, Einstein proved that these waves, if they exist, then they have to uh, exist with a phenomenon called non-locality. means that they reside in a domain that is outside of space and time. And of course, uh, that it seemed to Einstein and Podolsky and Rosen that this is against the grain of theory of relativity. So they basically suggested that quantum physics has to be wrong. This was called a paradox. But then after another uh, 50 years or so, we found that no experimentally that is the case. So after it is discovered, that is the case, then what's the problem? It's irrefutable, not debatable, that we have two domains of reality. One is space and time, and the other is where non-locality prevails, which is signal-less communication, communication faster than the speed of light or at infinite speed, which is not possible in space and time. That was Einstein's main point. But experiments judges everything in science, ultimately experiment is the final arbiter, so there is no argument that we have two domains. And the second domain, domain of potentiality, is a domain where non-locality, signal-less communication is the only way of communicating. What does that mean? You know it may be a little obscure, it took me a long time to recognize what it means, but it means oneness of everything. There is no, there's no argument against it. If, Communication takes no time, then we are all one. That's why it doesn't take any time. That's why there is no space between any of the objects that we can discern. And so if everything is one, that oneness, uh, it's very justified to think that this oneness is is uh, what mystics have talked about. And, of course, you can call it quantum field, but it is a fact that we need the observer to decide whether quantum measurement has taken place that converts possibility into actuality of the particle. So, where it becomes particle, if that requires observer, then only way to reconcile that is uh, observer consciousness is important in all this. And so, these things are not debatable. Why people debate about it is their stubborn insistence They would make all kinds of absolutely implausible models, like many world theories, one decoherence theory is another one, all kinds of absolutely incredibly uh, incredible models. They would rather have that than this particular solution of quantum physics. Well, this is against the grain of science. Science always has expanded by generalizing its basic assumptions. For example, the integration of electricity and magnetism, integration of the relativistic integration of electromagnetism and Newtonian physics. All this integration, because we, if we give up a basic prejudice, we find that we can integrate more. Now has come, come uh, the time when we have a enormous opportunity of integrating science and biology and psychology, physics and chemistry with biology and psychology and medicine. We can do it by making this assumption that this science applies to biology and psychology as well and if we make those assumptions we predict certain things and those things are verified some of the most important findings of the new science are already verified for example the potential from one brain to the to another that transfer is possible without electrical circuit without electromagnetic waves this has been verified in two dozen different laboratories across the world. Even after such verification, how can we say that these things are debatable?
1: They're not I've read a lot about psychic phenomena over the years and premonitions, uh, various forms of extrasensory perception, remote viewing. And a lot of the people who spent their lives researching it have said evidence for psychic phenomena is voluminous. But when you have to apply very conventional scientific criteria to it, measuring it, it can be difficult to replicate in a lab. Though even that may be changing now. And yet through many different experiences that we all have at different times in our lives, from intuition to even experiences we might have in our dreams there's all sorts you know just having gut senses about things or that whole you know Rupert Sheldrake sense of you know knowing when you're being looked at all these different experiences we have hint at something at a dual level reality and yet because this is something that we can't just attach a gauge to and say yes it's 4.5 weirdness or whatever (laughs) that we then have to dismiss it because if something comes back with different results all the time then it has to be somehow invalid. Again this is a subjective versus objective you know there's like so much subjective proof for so many things that are regarded as non-scientific but yet it's a subjective experience as it seems to me that really are the most meaningful in our lives.
0: And they're macroscopic, they're happening to us (laughs) so that's it basic argument against is microscopic, microscopic. If you hold on to the material body of ours, then of course you can live with answers that you get only from physics and chemistry. So, biologist, chemistry is not such a bad assumption. You get mm, much indoors and give some answers. But you cannot give answers to those things which pertains to our experiences of thinking, feeling and intuition. And those are the experiences that makes humans, humans. You know, animals have a body, nobody denying it. So if you want to stick to animal science, which most no scientists they really are much interested, although animal lovers certainly are. And uh, so, you know, this is the strange thing. They want to study the human being because that's where all the uh, money is in uh, neuroscience, in, in in biology and in Um, psychology and medicine, but they don't want to take responsibility of what actually is important for the human being. And when you come to that, you know, feelings, meanings and intuition, then there is no other way but to allow the experimentation of these areas. And here, plenty, plenty, as you said, demonstration of non-locality, this uh, information transfer across space and time, uh, plenty of that. and uh, they are very important and undoubtedly they exist. For example, near-death experience, consciousness without even the brain. You die and then you wake up from your death and people report that they were hovering over their body in the, in the uh, room where the surgery took place while he was revived and he saw the entire operation and he could describe it in Private details that just could not be guessed from knowing general surgical room procedures. So, in this kind of thing, this autoscopic view while you are dead, this uh, just absolutely <laughs> irrefutable <laughs> verification of the idea that consciousness does not need the brain to be active. <laughs> So, what more proof can you need that consciousness is the ground of being and not matter?
1: What you've alluded to a couple of times there about the lack of integration in sciences, we can see quite clearly just in divisions, you know, between physics and biology and chemistry, whatever it happens to be. And, uh, the problems that some researchers can get into if they try and stray from one field into another, you know, if a biologist tries to do physics or, you know, that's like, well, no, you should leave that. We're not going to, uh, review your paper. We're certainly not going to publish your paper because you're not a physicist. I often wondered what that was down to. You know, is it a byproduct of a mindset that takes things apart to try and understand them? That is to say that science as a whole becomes dissected almost like a lab rat. You take out the heart and the lungs and the liver and you look at each individual bit trying to understand it. But then after a while you lose sight of what of the whole thing. Again, it seems that uh, when we're coming to understand something in individual parts you know even in engineering like looking at an individual part of a car if someone comes from another planet to earth and we hand them a carburetor uh, would they ever be able to uh, work out what it had come from just by looking at that so i just think I, I i can't understand where this instinct comes from to um to atomize everything look look at how bad an outcome there is when we apply that sort of philosophy to our own personal lives it's terrible, you know.
0: Well, it's a, it's a lethargy of the mind, you know, this uh, staying within the box of your belief system. Uh, it forms pretty early on, and if you will notice, uh, scientists um, are more or less uh, within a particular class of people. Um, they propagates in the family. A lot of scientists have scientists in their family. And um, so you can tell, sort of, that they exist in a mindset where certain beliefs have been pretty much grounded pretty early in the development, when the child could not discern between what is true and what is false, because our hippocampus, you know, this is neuroscience, in the hippocampal part, it takes a while for it to be completed, and this is why early childhood memories are not reliable, and you cannot... Put an in order into those memories, and especially the most hurtful thing is that whatever people, adult people tell them, there's a tendency of believing that without questioning, because the questioning facility is not developed yet. So these are fundamental problems of being human and growing up as human. So what has happened is that they have more and more have two basic assumptions of how to do science. Science was originally the idea. That theory and experiment, two prongs. And then a third prong, technology. Uh, so these three prongs, fine. But now theory is defined by scientists as mathematical theory. Only theory that is permitted uh, that throws out a lot of biological theory itself. But biologists, this is why biologists don't make theory anymore. Of course, some exceptions, Darwin's theory, that is Gospel, but that has no mathematics in it. So some theories of the gospel nature they don't challenge, but other than that they keep away from theorizing more and more. It's more of a evidence-based science and the same thing has happened to psychology, evidence-based science and not much theory. Everybody avoids theory. Um, uh, why? Because the theoretical question can be answered only with philosophy. We do not have mathematics for these systems. Now they have a little bit of mathematics, they claim, it's all pseudo-mathematics, in my opinion, complexity theory. It's not about systems, it's about little automata, that cellular automata that move, and assumptions are made and theories are made on that basis. They purely apply to computers, they do not apply to real-life objects, because they're not talking about molecules and atoms and elementary particles. So... This way, we have developed a completely, you know, um, Bill Maher in his television should talk about tents that Republicans live and tents that Democrats live is, of course, a natural assumption also. He doesn't say that part. I'm making it up. It's true. And and now we have to make a tent in which the scientific materialists live. It's a huge tent. It, it, it has almost the whole scientific community, but they all live in tents. They're not, they're not living in the real world. And that is the problem. Fortunately, the healers, the medical people and the psychologists, they, some of them at least, really want to heal people. And because they want to heal people, they are not ashamed and they are a little bit open to use techniques that are being developed by the alternative medicine practitioners that are being developed even by me, you know, by go Quantum Doctor has been read by many, many medical professionals. And they like the ideas to, that they can expand, like knowing that they can expand their horizon. Of course, the American Medical Association is very powerful and they will never allow it in public. But, um, in private, many, many more physicians are, um, very enthusiastic, knowing that alternatives are developing that will make the healing profession much better, much more universal much more applicable to things that um, allopathic medicine just cannot handle, like cancer. We waste billions and billions of dollars in cancer research, would you believe that it all goes into materialist research? And materialist research is hopeless dealing with this um, uh, subtle aspects of ourselves. Cancer may may be caused in a few cases from from genetic uh, reasons. But mainly, it is caused by for behavioral reasons, lifestyles, and lifestyle is about the mind and about the feelings. We have to bring thinking, feeling, and intuition in the affair before we can deal with this chronic disease. But gradually, as I said, the you know idea I gave, gave the idea in 2004 in a book called the Quantum Doctor, and it has been it has it has been uh, somewhat popular, and opening up a few doctors. New horizons,
1: so there is hope. Well, everything from the placebo effect through to spontaneous remission are kind of suggestive of this mind-body relationship. This this like holistic picture that um, I think are generally dismissed as kind of like, oh, this person had cancer and suddenly it went away. Oh, that's great. Um, off you go home. You know, thanks. <laughs> you didn't need the drugs after all. The placebo effect is often talked about as like as nothing in a way. As kind of like you know because a placebo as in a sugar pill, is nothing. So therefore, the effect of the mind acting on the body is almost seen as nothing. Oh, yeah, it was just a sugar pill. Well, no, it wasn't. (laughs) It was the mind acting on the body, which is enormously significant. Enormously significant, exactly. So so what does it do? If you analyze
0: it, then you find even more significant things. So we've got an entirely new concept of how healing uh, takes place at all. Um, uh, this is, this is the way to look at it. A patient develops a disease. They develops a disease because the lifestyle is not right. So, all the chronic disease, if you look at them, and there is more or less an agreement that the lifestyle is not right, expresses in terms of what we call stress, emotional stress. And this emotional stress is causing havoc. All right. So, um, uh, what does that do? That means that the belief system that the person has has become faulty under the aegis of scientific materialism. Why? Because we more and more believe that we cannot heal. It's something wrong with my body and only a doctor can heal me by giving medicine. So we don't have we, we what we have is the loss of power in our own ability of contacting wholeness, which is the basis for healing. Instead, believe that somebody else has to do it because I cannot do it. And so they go to a doctor and then the doctor, whatever the doctor gives, I mean, it could be sugar pill, it could be pharmaceuticals, but they all more or less work with the same thing that all of a sudden the patient believes that, yes, doctor has given me something, therefore healing will take place. And that is the placebo effect. The placebo is re-establishing. Patients' belief in healing. Healing, of course, takes place by the patient. It's a very individual thing. The body knows, the consciousness knows, and the healing possibilities are always there. So consciousness chooses those healing possibilities with very little help from uh, uh, the surroundings except that basic, basic help, the healing intention. So the the placebo effect is re-establishing healing intention because of the patient belief that I have lost the ability of doing it. I cannot heal myself. Doctor has to heal me. That comes back and therefore it works. So in this way, if you look at it in this way, it's it's much more than just, uh, you know, mental mind effect on the brain. Uh, that you may able to be avo- able to avoid by various tricks of um, sophistry, but you cannot avoid the fact that it's the our consciousness, the intention, that healing intention is what eventually heals us, and the power of the intention is the power of consciousness uh, over matter, and this power is so much that if properly. Exercised as indications of spontaneous healing, then it can even heal overnight. Uh, heal overnight, uh, uh, cases of cancer, and there are so many data for it. Of course, we in, in retrospect we have developed ideas like quantum healing. Thanks to the Chopra, and I have contributed to that too. Uh, you can use the creative process. By the way, people are now using the creative process. I have several cases of people who have written to me that they have using the, they have used the creative process to heal themselves. And one of the cases is actually a case of cancer. So mm, progress is taking place.
1: Interestingly, I was uh, recently watching some footage that was in the CERN facility in Switzerland, uh, the the Large Hadron Collider, which has been much in the news um, off and on over the last few years for various reasons. And uh, some of the parts of the chamber were just so vast. And I thought, you know, this is like a cathedral. It's enormous. And then it occurred to me that it's kind of like the biggest cathedral in the world because thinking again about the divide between science and spirituality in general and it's sort of a bit of a cliche in itself but that much talked about divide and i thought well what's the difference here i mean these scientists at cern are seeking ultimate meaning that's what they're doing otherwise what are they doing this for what is the point of all this they're they're looking for god in a way they're looking for ultimate meaning you know what is this for why are we here is there meaning is there purpose the priests in their cathedrals are part of a tradition. They may have lost the roots of where that came from, but it was the same thing, really. And that, to me, it's the same need that these remarkably similar human beings are actually trying to answer in themselves.
0: I don't think they look for meaning and a purposive um, universe the same way as that you were talking about. I think most scientists are motivated in a in a very different way. Of course, for a run-of-the-mill scientists, is very clear. They're just making a living. And they don't particularly care what worldview is. They just compete with one another so that they can get a better job, more pay. Those things matter much more than what worldview I'm contributing to. Now, a few scientists, of course, do talk about worldviews. But look at it from their point of view. They are also more interested in their aggrandizement, which is fame and money, uh, then it meets the eye, I think it's time to uh time for us to give up the idealist uh, notion that we have. um yes, scientists uh some previous time, like when Einstein and Niels Bohr lived at, at those times, scientists did pursue meaning but now in you know in the eighties nineties um, uh Weinberg uh, who discovered and got Nobel Prize for his discoveries basic stuff about uh, interactions, weak interaction. Uh, He wrote one of his books that uh, more I look at the cosmos, the more it looks pointless, meaningless. And that meaninglessness, you know, I have mixed very, very long time with these high-energy physicists. I mean, they are my friends. They used to be anyway. So, you know, they are not really uh, moved by this world you talk anymore. They are not really moved by is this meaningful anymore. They just want to further their career get a Nobel Prize. Nobel Prize uh, gives a lot of incentive to a lot of people at the highest level of thinking. And what the low level of thinking, mediocre level of thinking, of course mainly is to just stay alive, making a pretty high salary. Their salaries are pretty high compared to the rest of the society. <laughs> You know, every physicist, every chemist, every biologist makes at least uh, more than a hundred thousand dollars in America, which means that they are in the upper twenty percent, upper ten percent actually of the uh, income spectrum. They are in the upper middle class and, and, and their salaries are only going up. They're taking advantage of the fact that we have a very elitist society. And that is the real motivation. It's no longer the motivation that exists in a previous age. We just have to face up with it. And the more we tell the truth to people, whenever we get an opportunity, is better. We should give up all these old-fashioned images of what scientists are about. They don't pursue truth because they don't agree that there is such an archetype as truth.
1: Perhaps what I was thinking of was that on sub subconscious level that that's still there, that whether they would realize it or not, admit it, acknowledge it, that there, some driver, even if it was um, had long... Lost a sense of what it, where it had come from that it was still somehow causing this to happen. You know, deep within the subconscious, it was it was causing something like CERN to be constructed it was a search for meaning. But it's just that perhaps that had become lost somewhere along the way. And, um,
0: and what was to become lost even more? It, it, yes, you were right. And even in the seventies and eighties, I don't think people were um, wrong with some of the enthusiasm they showed that. You know, they're very aware that it is reason we do physics is to find reason why we enjoy the arts, why we enjoy the... In other words, they wanted to know the answers to why we do all those things. But now they don't, because the paradigm has convinced everybody that those things that we enjoy is a fluke. They have no uh, causal power. The, the fact that you enjoy music, and therefore you are a better scientist, therefore you make discoveries that has impact on the world, they don't believe that anymore. More and more, the neuroscientists want to prove that we are philosophical robots and look at the power of of robotic thinking, uh, rise of that power in scientific circles. Information theory, all the basic theories are now going towards proving that information is more powerful than meaning. We don't really need meaning. All we need is that the world somehow propagates information. A whole Darwinian theory is now being re- um, formulated in terms of propagation of information.
1: Well, I suppose one issue is that um, anything in the frontiers of science that points towards something that uh, might cause someone to say, "Oh, well, you know, what, what does this mean?" or does this imply some kind of purpose? That tends to certainly in uh, in the in the media when when science is reported it, it a lot of, um, journalists will latch on to some of these things and, and, uh, which is perhaps where the phrase, you know, the God particle came from. And of course, this scares a lot of scientists off because they, in terms of implications of research, they perhaps don't, there are certain directions they're not willing to go in or certain things, possibilities they may not be willing to really consider because if it would indicate, um, even the possibility that, oh, well, perhaps we should look for meaning or purpose in any of this, then it's like whoa that, that that implies you know the idea of a creator and then if you even begin to or a creator any type of any type of background meaning and purpose that then has the side effect uh, in many people's minds that it allows uh, religious people or creationists or other type of fundamentalists to come along and say aha I told you so even though that's not really the case at all
0: you are making a very good point very good point. Yes, this is, a, uh, this is also a huge problem. Science grew up with the idea that it needs to oppose religion, and of course religion had the uh, upper hand, Christianity, uh, initially. And scientists are just very unable to prove it. Even in 1924, you know, um, religions were fighting against evolution. And religions are still fighting. Even with St. Francis, who is, a, who is a pretty decent guy, now he is not really so keen to change the Catholic uh, Church's view on evolution very quickly. So these things don't help and the creationist theories are very strong, you know, politically in this country because Republicans generally support that view. So um, it is a huge, huge issue. I don't blame the scientists, I see both sides of course, They're very worried if they allow the quantum integration that is taking place between science and spirituality, religions will come back. So what we have to do is to really, really, this is why a coordinated effort is needed to um, hit the problem from all sides. I have suggested, uh, you know, we change secularism and establish a new secularism which distinguishes between religion and spirituality. We need this new kind of secularism, and we need that publicized. We need uh, the uh, media to be aware of it that, look, spirituality is different from religion. Spirituality is not Christianity, popular Christianity. So, popular Christians may not agree with evolution, but that means nothing. Spirituality completely agrees with evolution. Read the work of Tehran Disharda in the West or Sri Aurobindo in India. So, take the. Changes are taking place, but media is the biggest problem, actually not even the scientists. The reason that we have problem is that the media generally supports the scientific view uh, that the, propon- the proponents of materialism uh, and not the view that is developing the alternative science areas, the post-materialist areas, transpersonal psychology. You know, there was a time in the 70s and 80s that we were getting some publicity. But that's long finished. Um, New York uh, Review of Books don't even accommodate any book which proposes that consciousness is the ground of being. They would not review it, just on principle because they have already decided that, no, that's not in favour of how to increase our uh, publicity or how to sell more papers. You know, they don't realise that there is a hunger uh, among people to look into that direction. So it, uh, it does not affect their sales, but still they won't do it because of the prejudice of the people who are engaged with
1: it. The whole consciousness as the ground of being concept is something that's, again, been much talked about of late, and that's set against the idea of consciousness as merely a sort of an epiphenomenon of the brain. That is to say that consciousness that you and I experience and that everything other people experience and um, most living creatures experience in some form is not that significant because it's still a byproduct of evolution From essentially a primordial soup for no reason, for no purpose. If you're taking that point of view, then everything from quantum physics through to at one end of the scale, through to cosmology and the nature of the universe at the other, is all equally kind of meaningful or meaningless in some ways. And I've always been particularly fascinated with looking up to the skies. And a lot of people say, well, that, you know, they're thinking about the origins of everything that is and where the stars and the planets came from and the idea, the theory of the Big Bang. And that's really where we should be looking for, you know, the ultimate reason behind everything. But um, again, I'm not sure if if I'm exactly quoting you here from the book. Forgive me, it might just be paraphrasing. But in a very interesting section, you sort of say that modern cosmology is in a way a kind of distraction um, yes. <laughs> so say, say something about that because that's very important in itself yes it
0: is very important you know we, we, we cannot give up the idea that our mind uh, roams in the loves to roam in the spiritual arena it loves to imagine that yes consciousness is bigger than it seems at the first sight so we need that we need the spiritual component in our life so these scientists deliberately, they provide a sort of a pseudo-spiritual uh, component of how people should think, which is that um, they, they have created theories of very exotic objects. Um, the theorists, you know, theorists, I'm not suggesting the theorists don't have validity, but, but look at the kind of exposure they get and compare the, that exposure with the consequence that they have. Consequence is zero. It does not matter that black holes exist. To any, any shape or form, to any human thing, it just does not matter whether black holes exist and especially to go into the black hole theory in such details it does not make any difference except to a few theorists who would like to show each other that they are better than the other. This is the only reason, as I said, scientists do their work today. Who is most intelligent? Stephen Hawking or somebody else who is giving theories of black holes? So, uh, that being the criterion, the for the media to build this up, these scientists did not could not do single-handedly. It's the media which creates the words like God particle. Look at this perfectly important idea for particle physicists. Yes, objects get their mass, their basic theory is saying all objects, all elementary particles should have the same mass, so there must be something missing. So that missing field is called Higgs boson. Well, that's perfectly reasonable for those people who are attached to that theory. Fine. So we made a good case for it, and maybe there is, it has been discovered. Maybe not. People still still debate it. Uh, but that issue is a, such an esoteric issue. It's based on a theory of elementary particles, which even is debatable if that theory is ever going to be a correct theory because it has so many parameters. Mm. Some of the proponents don't like this theory. the peaceful theory. But in any case, calling it a God particle, you know, that only uh, invokes a joke which I'll share with you. So when Higgs Boson is discovered, the next day, it shows up at a Catholic church. And the priest is very surprised. He asks, what are you doing here? And the Higgs boson says gravely, without me, there is no mass. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, in that remote way, uh, Higgs boson does apply to religion, but only in that funny way. It's it's a a funny play on the word mass. But in other way, it has anything to do with God. In other way, it has anything to do with oneness. That uh, concept lies in the concept of non-locality, which quantum physics is giving us. But will, have you read any newspaper lately, any article whatsoever on quantum non-locality? This is the greatest discovery of the last 50 years. Um, these guys should have won a Nobel Prize, every one of them. Uh, John Bell, uh, David Bohm passed away, um, Alan Aspey who actually discovered it, and uh, many others who have uh, replicated the experiment in wonderful ways, they all should get Nobel Prize because this certainly is the greatest discovery of uh, recent times, in the past 50, 60 years. After the discovery of DNA, this is the major discovery. But uh, who is listening?
1: Mentioning the Higgs boson is a good example because after a, um, again, that was one of these popular science things that popped up and the, and the media reported it at great length about this discovery. Uh, even though most people you know, listening or reading the news they just had no idea really of what information was being put in front of them, they couldn't really interpret it. But you know, the media would quite often do a, a pop boil down for them and say, and this is it. And they'd say, it means this, or it could mean that. It took me a while of talking to some experts to really begin to establish and say, well, just, okay, hang on a minute here. Does this thing exist the Higgs boson, that is it. Does it exist or is it still a theoretical object? Or is it something that perhaps its existence has been implied because of the effect of something on something else? To say, well, so this, you know, a bit like dark matter and dark energy. And I got so many different versions of it. And to this day, if someone said to me in a bar, oh, Higgs boson, okay, that Higgs boson thing that was on the news, does it exist? I'd say, I'm still not sure. Um, and then you start asking what exists means, but the general point being that I think with a lot of this stuff that comes out and reaches uh, mass audiences, I'm not sure how many people realize how much of this stuff is theoretical, um, that it's just an idea that's uh, for, you know, constructed or suggested for whatever reason. But for a lot of people, it then becomes a real thing. It's like the scientific tendency to name something in lieu of actually understanding it. So yeah, the- give it a name
0: so that which will catch I mean Darwin did that uh, as much as, you know, so many years ago, 150 years ago. He put in the word survival and ever since it's causing so much mischief. People have looked for and looked for and looked for characteristics of molecules if they have survivability in their vocabulary. Molecules don't. Nobody has been able to produce a molecule that really struggles to survive. It just, uh, even if the molecules have show some characteristics, they cannot connect it to the molecules of life, namely DNA and protein. These programmed molecules just are not programmed by regular molecules. Their programming come from other sources. And this is the problem that scientists are very uh, difficult, very hard-pressed to admit, and that non-admitting, which is what... uh, prevents them from even uh, frankly admitting that Darwin's theory is a bad theory, or frankly admitting which you just said that these theories are just theory. there is no, look no at, I mean I don't want to really particularly enjoy mentioning name, but in this case I will because you know this fellow has enormous amount of popular appeal, Stephen Hawking, he has not his any None of his theories, none, not one, not a single one of his theories has been experimentally verified. In one time there was a time in, um, in the scientific world when uh, a pure theoretician would be called a powerful mathematician, which he is, a fantastic mathematician, but would have not much respect in the world of physics. You know, even Einstein, who was also a fantastic mathematician of his time, did not get his Nobel Prize for the work of his highest theoretical intellect, which is general relativity. Instead, he got Nobel Prize for his work on basic quantum physics, photoelectricity. So that gives you a it gives you a, uh, what used to be more important in science in the olden days than what is more important now. Why is Hawking so famous? Because the, uh, of course, partly because of his physical, um, uh, problem which everybody of course feels sorry for him um, and that of course correct. nobody can begrudge and and therefore he got opportunities of publicizing himself, make, make himself a, a figure which appeals to people and he does have of course he does have very very good writing ability, enormous intellectual ability not to take away any of it all I am saying is that in a previous age he would have extreme difficulty to be acknowledged like you know one reads in newspapers is the greatest physicist of the world. So many newspaper articles about that. That would just never happen in a previous era. People whose ideas have not been verified experimentally are not regarded as physicists or scientists. They're regarded as mathematicians. And that's a different category.
1: I do agree. And I I remember reading something uh, that was quoting something that Hawking had said and someone was putting to him about, oh well, You've got this terrible physical affliction, and you know, imagine what you know your scientific life could have been without this. And and he kind of said, "Well, you know, I think I've had a great life, and 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 who could ask for more? Really, he feels in his own way privileged. No, I it was quite touching. That was nice, but on the other hand, you're absolutely right about the special position he's found himself in. And uh, routinely, not often, but regularly, uh, media stories get released to popular audiences about something that Stephen Hawking, and not just a single him out, there's lots of other you know, quite popular scientists around the world or uh, popular scientific materialists for example, like Richard Dawkins, but the last thing I read, Stephen Hawking was sort of, and this was repeated not once but several times by the mainstream media with gaps of a few months so for people with short term memories which seems to be most people, that each time it appeared to be new, he was saying that mankind in order to survive, must populate other planets, you know, because there's no way we can survive here long term. And I thought, well, first of all, we have, we're currently as far away as ever from doing anything like that. And second, I just don't believe that that's the case. And yet, no, and, and say, on what basis is he saying this? Is, is he actually offering any plans for us to do this? I mean, I might as well just say that. I could just say, you know, mankind must invent a time machine. Now, it doesn't mean I've done it. It just means I've made a statement.
0: Good point. Good point. And and this is this is a particular problem that we have with the media. Media takes the most uh, incredible ideas from scientific materialism because they are not going to be objected to by people. Materialists sort of look the other way because Stephen Hawking is making their trade more popular, and they would go for it rather than question uh, his supremacy. So you know, in private, of course, people are completely aware of what I just said to you. But in public, they prof- profit by Stephen Hawking's success. No, so that is a very, very important point. And the the whole uh, point is laughable to us because obviously the media buys it like stock and barrel, because you know as you know, if media also buys Donald Trump. Media single-handedly built Donald Trump and media similarly single-handedly built Stephen Hawking. And the comparison, I'm not making it lazily. I'm quite serious in the comparison. They have many similarities of character.
1: Okay, Amit. Well, as we move into the final section um, of the show, let's then um, say something about what you think or where you think we should be looking for meaning and purpose to make these important connections that we need to make to perform this integration because this is really the core of your message and has been through all your work now for a long time. So but in terms of the new book um, let's just let's begin to explore that.
0: Okay so the basic idea that, that I propose is that okay scientists do make a very valid point not Stephen Hawking, not the astrophysicist, not the cosmologist, But these simple people who wants to heal ourselves, the doctors, the psychologists who also want to heal ourselves, and in general, the conscientious neuroscientists. I'm very pleased with the progress neuroscientists are making. They make the simple, simple concern that, okay, we have a human condition. The human condition does not speak for us very well because it's centered on me a very objective uh, consciousness. We have objectified the subject so much. Most people don't even recognize they have a subject. It is true. I have found it in my workshops. They don't understand the ABC of consciousness because they don't even know what the subject is, what it's all about. So we are that stuck. And then we have negative emotional brain circuits built into us that come from instincts. Um, This is very, very unfortunate. And then top of it, we also have very instinctual pleasure circuits built into us, too. So we can, and today, uh, partly thanks to uh, capitalism, we have uh, definitely a very affluent society, partly thanks to materialist technology. Those two factors have given us affluence in the West. Enormous affluence. So anybody, more or less anybody, uh, sixteen percent are excluded, I am not completely ignoring them, but more or less anybody can uh, hide their difficulties with a consumer mindset and we do. And it's I am not criticizing it, I am just pointing out this is the way it is. So we have this human condition, you can live a life of pleasure and avoid the pain, that negative emotions, that your bad lifestyle brings, um, by the society that we have produced. Um, we don't really need, you know, big big problem of uh, insurance that is going on right now, health insurance debate. But the Republicans are not wrong. A majority of the public do not support Obamacare. The reason is that the person who gains, they are in that sixteen percent. So uh, it's a very difficult situation to have created. It's completely possible to live in the human condition and be as happy as humanity on the average has ever been because we really don't have the kind of suffering that mystics talk about. You know, life is no longer suffering, which begins mystical search. So that is a major difficulty. You have to acknowledge it. So we're not talking about the general public, the people who vote for Trump, They are not ever going to see how one can complain about this wonderful human condition which gives them a pretty comfortable, pleasurable life. So uh, who is complaining? The complainers are roughly about 15%, a very small portion of the 100%, 15%. But it's possible to look at it from a glass is half empty or glass glass is half full point of view. So I'm actually quite enthusiastic that we have as many as 15% who are looking for meaning and purpose. Why do they look for meaning and purpose? Because they see that we don't have to live this way. They see the meaninglessness like I saw at age 37, the meaninglessness of living this way, they see it to 15%. When I saw it in 1973, The number was a bit bigger because we were going through a huge uplift of the uh, hippie generations. They really did us good, that is the best time in America and some of Europe also. But that is long past. We have regressed to now the Donald Trump area of mindset. So um, okay, that's fine. But what we find is that this fifteen percent is completely capable, they are completely capable of transforming. And so we have to work hard to grow this 15% into gradually 20%, 25%, that's one way. And the rest of it is to develop a worldview, and quantum worldview is doing that, that completely serves the meaning and purposive search of this 15%. You are one of them, I am one of them, there are many of us. 15% of 7 billion people is close to a billion people. That's huge, that's huge. A billion people on this planet wanting to transform, being capable of transform, that's huge. Mm-hmm. So that's what we should count on. Mm-hmm. And so my work is completely designed to help these people to grow, mm-hmm. and I call them quantum activists. Much of them are officially that, but most of them are officially already as my blessing, mm-hmm. and they are quantum activists. I deeply appreciate that so many people are trying hard you know, and there is, there is evidence that this is the correct number. There is evidence in the fact that there is 877 million people who one way or another practice yoga. This is data. And David Hawking has done another data, another piece of data, very interesting. He has measured um, by muscle testing people who can handle transformation or people who are totally established in transactional lifestyle. What is in it for me? And he finds again the same number, 15%. So we have very, very um, good reason to be very optimistic that the world is changing. We have every uh, right to think that quantum worldview is giving us new ways, you know, as I have put forth in everything answer book, new answers. And it is answering all the questions, all the concerns that we have. It is giving answers to how to uh, change our economy, how to change our politics, how to save democracy, how to save capitalism. It is telling us how to reformulate our healthcare, how to make it more integrated, how to integrate science and spirituality, being religions more in step with science. It is giving all the answers that we need. And indirectly, it is really giving even answers to the great calamities that is coming to us in the form of terrorism or even global warming. It's amazingly, it's giving us an attitudinal shift which will eventually solve the problem of global climate
1: change. The concept of a quantum worldview in detail is more than we can really get into. We've touched upon some of it, of course. Listeners are really going to need to just read the book, read some of your other work, to begin to understand this at a more fundamental level if they want to but for someone just listening right now for if they're full of questions what does this if they but if they feel like I want to make a change like this I I, I feel that that's where I'm going it's where I need to be what what does um tomorrow morning look like for them or what would you say to them right now just briefly as like well do this you know explore that think this or consider that or not even tomorrow morning. Right now, you know what, what? What does that look like, or is that is that too simplistic and glib a sort of thing for you to ask to say to someone? That
0: is, that is that is the basic question. No, so it's a very important question. Maybe simplistic, but very important question. And I think the answer is um, just that one answer that that turned turned me on how to integrate my life with the way I think. That is the most basic problem, and then to bring my livelihood alignment in alignment with the way I live and the way I think. So the, so the very um, idea of how to integrate these three things, if we center on it, we'll ourselves figure it out. That scientific materialism will only increase the chasm between the way we think and the way we live, because it is, it, it is a subject, as we discussed very powerfully that it is a subject that takes us away from how we live. We're never going to learn any hints from how we live by looking at black holes, never. Uh, So we have to move away from those pursuits and really ask ourselves, okay, how do I bring my thinking in so that it is useful for my living? If this basic question we can ask, we can establish meaning and purpose in our life, very easily. And the next question, of course, is the one of social concern, which is how to change our social systems, including how we do science. Uh, healing it's happening already, but it's very important for people uh, to reconsider the whole area of how we do science. We have to bring back some of that academic honesty that existed in the time of Einstein and his world. Now it doesn't exist. The whole whole idea of denigrating truth that we ascribe to Donald Trump is not Trump's doing. He is too insignificant to be able to do that. It's the doing of the entire class of people that we classify as scientific materialists. They have been telling for the last hundred years or so that there is no such thing as absolute truth. There is no such thing as archetypes. There is no such thing as values. Everything comes from matter and everything comes from the One thing that they do hone on to because of Darwinism is survival. So everything follows from that one necessity they do admit, survival necessity, but that's it. That's the only humanness they allow.
1: Just a closing thought. Uh, You you mentioned a moment ago about uh, perhaps environmental pressures or crises being something that might spur us onward ultimately. And in the book you consider the idea of temporary evil on the path to eventual good and the evil may be required by evolution and when i say evil i don't wish to sound melodramatic or quasi-religious but a lot of people look at the world now and they see gathering problems and a lot of people despair and uh final question i suppose would be you know are we were we created to somehow make it are we supposed to succeed, whatever success looks like, or could all this have happened before and might it all happen again? And would it matter if this particular little experiment that you and I are part of ultimately fails, but some bigger scheme continues to unfold?
0: I think you are completely right. Some bigger scheme is continuing to unfold. I call it the movement of consciousness. We are right now engaging um, in a new era of evolution of the mind, Previous Uras are mind used to give meaning to the physical and then mind gave meaning to the what I call the vital mind. It's actually Aurobindo's terminology. Um, Then for the last 12,000 years, ever since inception of agriculture, we have been doing mental mind, rational mind, mind studying mind itself. That too is, of course, very limited, as you know very well. We see the value of meaning. That's about everything we see. And eventually, even that is now degraded and meaning is being replaced by information. So, what is the next age, though? I mean, mind obviously will continue to give meaning to all our experiences. But what is very interesting from the um, feeling point of view, you know, we have uh, been... Now, really making progress in terms of feeling. Because the expression of creativity has really started rising in our culture. Even people who process information, even among them, there is many more creative people today, many more people of expression. Look at the expressions. I mean, the internet has just... Why is computers and communication making so much impact? Because everyone wants to communicate. And people are, relatively speaking, quite creative, expressive in that. They're just not allowing the creativity to invade in their inner life. But outwardly, creativity is one thing that everybody is talking about. So this is a very good sign. Creativity exists in our fifth chakra, in the chakra language. You know, we have this heart chakra, that's the fourth chakra. Fifth higher chakra is the fourth chakra, creativity. Next high chakra is actually connected with the brain. This is the chakra that is between our brow and that's the place where we feel intuition. Well known, third eye, it used to be called in spiritual tradition. We learn to see with another kind of stimulus that comes through, come to us through intuition. It's a third eye. We see two eyes physical and then there is this intuitive that we can see when our third eye is opening. And this is what is taking place right now. Just behind the third eye is the prefrontal cortex, where we also similarly experience intuitive thoughts, creative thoughts. That's where we process it. And so this could not be a coincidence that is happening now. 3,000 years ago, we discovered the power of intuition. We discovered the power of spirituality. And now after 3,000 years, we're ready to delve into it in a massive scale. Because our intellect, based on just the mind, is not working anymore. It's not getting us answers. We cannot survive in a democratic society in the way we are going. And we know it. We cannot make capitalism work for very long the way we are going. We know it. So all these things, this crisis, is uh, bringing us to a point where... We know that we have to change. How long can we resist? We can resist a little bit. And I'm sure we'll resist for a few decades. But no longer. Because uh, answers are coming, no? The very important thing is for the alternative scientists, alternative paradigm seekers, uh, to just keep on working their uh, the what work they're doing. But with a view, a little more change view, instead of competing with each other, Let's try to develop the common meanings together in such a way that we really provide a completed worldview at the time when humanity will be ready to make a move. This is what changed people in the 18th century with the Industrial Revolution. The scientists finally delivered. They knew how to deliver the technology needed for the society overall to move forward. And that is what changed the worldview from the religious one to the scientific one. So similarly, we have to prove useful. We already have proven uh, some usefulness in the health area, but we have to prove usefulness in the economic area, in the political area, in the educational area, and actually show that, yes, it is useful. In that vein, I'm already you know, uh, establishing some institutions of transformational learning. And other people are doing the same thing. These transpersonal institutes are showing up more and more. This is a very good thing. So we'll see.
1: I am very, very hopeful about the future. Well, Amit, today we've been discussing your latest book. That's the Everything Answer book, How Quantum Physics Explains Love, Death and the Meaning of Life. That's widely available everywhere. Um, But before we sign off for today, perhaps you've got a website that you'd like to give listeners or indeed just anything else that you'd like to share with them.
0: Well, my website is the primary way of getting to me, reaching me. And um, by the way, if you write to me, I answer uh, every letter, almost every letter. If it's crazy, then I don't. But uh, I'm sure you won't be in that category. So please write. Um, The uh, address is on my website, amitgoswami.org. That's Amit Goswami, one word, .org. Thank you so much for contacting. You know, as you get the gist, I'm very optimistic. And if you would like to know more about quantum activism, consult my website or consult Greg's website. I'm sure he will also put a link on, uh, to our, my website for a while. And uh, please join the Quantum Activism Movement. Quantum Worldview can give answers to all that you have wondered in view of the recent calamities, including including the calamity you notice in terms of the political breakdown that we are seeing. Go to my website. I have written about the phenomena. You will
1: find some answers. Thank you very much. Well, Amit, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. It was a good break.
0: You did good. Wonderful.
1: Thank you so much.